Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us for another week. Christy's got an awesome case. I think we're going UK. We are going UK. Fun. Everyone knows I like to travel around with my cases. <laughs> and then Melissa comes strong with our Canadian cases for us. Yep. Today's case was actually suggested by one of our listeners. I was tagged on a case summary about this murderer and found the case super intriguing. So thank you to Lyndon for the great suggestion. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we love Lyndon and his wife. Both of them are loyal listeners, and we really appreciate them. So we wanted to give them both a shout out. Thanks for listening. But we also want to give a shout out to all of our listeners. We love receiving messages from you and reading your comments on our Facebook and Instagram pages. We also appreciate everyone who has taken the time to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcast. That really helps us out. Yes, please keep doing that. And because we love our listeners so much, we have a giveaway coming up. It's exciting. Make sure to tune in with us next week when we can share more details with you. Yeah, we are super excited to gift one of our listeners with something just to show you how much we do appreciate you. Absolutely. But today's case. Yes, let's get into it. Today's case is unlike any of the cases we have covered so far on Buried Motives. We will be discussing the man who was given the title of Britain's Most Dangerous Prisoner. Ooh. One of the reasons he is given this name is that he started out by murdering only one man, but he ends up becoming a serial killer while being incarcerated. What? So Mm -hmm. he got away with murder in jail? Yep. He got incarcerated after his first murder. Yep. But then goes on to murder three more while being incarcerated. Under all the security in prison. Yeah. So he wasn't a serial killer before he was arrested, but became one afterwards. So did he commit that first murder with this in mind that he wanted to get into jail? No. Oh. Mm -mm. So jail made him a serial killer? Not exactly. Oh. Okay. (laughs) It's super interesting. And like I said, we haven't covered anything exactly like this before. Thanks, Lyndon, for the case recommendation. Yeah. I was able to take a lot of deep dives in this one. So I'll try to keep it short and sweet. (laughs) Nice. But informative. This man's case is also unique in the fact that many people think he did society a favor by murdering his victims. Well, because they would all be prisoners, right? Right. Some view his killings as vigilante work. And I would say that he is classified as a vigilante killer. However, I can't support the fact that he viciously murdered four men. Yeah, it's kind of hard to justify that, right? It is. But there are a lot of people who do and think, oh yeah, he should have done more. He was doing society a favor. Well, he was definitely saving tax dollars. True. (laughs) And it's kind of harder to talk about, too, because you don't really feel much sympathy for his victims. Oh, that's true. Yeah, where normally we do feel a lot of sympathy for the victims. This case also will raise the question, can there be too harsh a punishment for a serial killer? I'm super curious what you all will think, because what happens to him in prison may almost seem inhumane. Oh, really? And then this is after he is convicted of his extra murders. Yes, after his final murder. (laughs) What could be worse than death? What's happening to this man right now is worse than death, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. What kind of punishment did they think up? Well, I'm going to tell you, but you have to wait. (laughs) (laughs) So are you ready to get into it? I am. 
Robert John Maudsley was born in Speak, Liverpool, England on June 26, 1953. His father was George Maudsley and his mother was named Jean. His parents had three children prior to Robert being born. Two other sons, Paul and Kevin, as well as a daughter, Brenda. I'm not sure about others, but these siblings for sure called him Bob. So he's the baby of the family. Robert's home was far from a happy one, and he suffered neglect from a very early age. While still an infant, Robert and his three siblings were apprehended from their home and sent to Nazareth House, a Roman Catholic orphanage in Crosby, Liverpool. The four children lived there together and were raised by nuns. Robert's parents would visit occasionally, but not enough for him to even really get to know them. His parents were essentially strangers to him. Sorry, how old was he at the time that he went? He was just a baby. I read that I think he was about six months old at the time. He was definitely under two. Wow, so he had no recollection of his parents then. They were just these random people that would come and visit sometimes. Right. Robert and his siblings, however, remember their time at Nazareth House as a happy and loving time. They were able to stay together and strengthen their bonds with one another. They were safe and cared for. Oh, well, that's a nice setting then. Mm Mm-hmm. Robert was described as having a sense of humor, being kind and gentle, and extremely intelligent. In fact, he had a genius-level IQ. As an adult, he would later come to love poetry, classical music, and art. And later, when incarcerated, Robert wanted to take an open university degree in music theory. He wouldn't be doing anything with it because he's in jail. Yeah. But he just wanted to learn. And that's what he did in jail. Okay. He wanted to. Mm. Yeah, he doesn't get to. Spoiler alert. But he has this genius level IQ. Maybe he shouldn't have murdered so many people then. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he could have still. Yeah, he probably could have. He could have done a lot with his life had this not all happened. Which is so true of so many of the killers that we talk about. They have this incredible intelligence that they waste. Yeah. Or they put it to the wrong use. Exactly. Yeah. And I really do believe that if Robert had stayed at the orphanage with his siblings... I'm fairly certain we would not be sitting here today discussing his life because he was doing really well there. So what happened? What takes him away from the orphanage? Well, when Robert was nine years old, his parents came to the orphanage to collect him and his siblings. Ugh. Mm-hmm. How many chances do you think parents should get? That's a tough one. I think that's totally circumstantial. I don't think you can put a generic number on it. I don't think you can either. No. But I just think back to our case that we covered a few weeks ago where the two Joshua's were both dirtbags. Had he been left with his foster parents and not given back to his dad, his life would have totally turned out differently, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The tale of two Joshua's. That was an interesting case. (laughs) But yeah, we see this a lot, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Robert's life could have turned out completely different had his parents not intervened. Oh, yeah. I absolutely feel that he would have been A-OK moving on Mm. because he was doing really well. And things take a dark turn when his parents take him home. His parents must have had some extra time on their hands after their children were sent to Nazareth House because they ended up having eight more children while the oldest four children were in the orphanage, Oh, bringing their total to 12 children. And none of the other eight were taken away from them? No. So the first four get apprehended and taken to the orphanage. In the meantime, mom and dad have eight more children, and then they come back to get these older four. Eight more children in nine years. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's enough to make you crazy. And so now these children, they have spent the majority of their life in this orphanage with the nuns. They probably have structure and they feel cared for and loved. And now they're going to this home with these strangers and eight more children who they don't even know. It would be pure chaos. It would be. And it is. Robert's older brother, Paul, said, quote, We went to Nazareth House in Crosby, which was run by nuns. It was a brilliant place. And we all went to school up the road in Little Crosby. 
We were happy. We spent nine years there and we were a family unit. We looked upon the nuns as our parents. Our real parents never came to see us until towards the very end of those nine years. We didn't know them. I have no memories of them before we were at the orphanage. So what caused the parents to re-enter their life? Obviously, they didn't care very much about these children because they didn't visit them at first. So why did they go back and get them and collect them? I'm not sure. I couldn't find any information as to why. Oh. Maybe they wanted the older kids to help look after the younger ones. So unusual. They brought the four children back to their house in Toxteth, Liverpool. And unfortunately, this is when the real abuse would start for Robert. All 12 children suffered at the hands of their parents, but for some reason, Robert's father seemed to especially enjoy beating and tormenting Robert. It always is curious to me why one child is singled out more than another in an abusive home, but it often does occur. It does, unfortunately. And who knows other than that dirtbag abuser why they're choosing that. Sometimes it's evident, but not always. Mm Mm-hmm. Paul commented that he didn't think that Robert was beaten more than him and Kevin, but he thinks it affected Robert more. He also noted that their sister Brenda never received beatings. Oh, maybe she was receiving something else. She could have been. Mm-hmm. It's probably likely, actually. Paul said, quote, At the orphanage, we had all got on really well. Our parents would come to visit, but they were just strangers. The nuns were our family, and we all used to stick together. Then our parents took us home, and we were subjected to physical abuse. It was something we'd never experienced before. They just picked on us one by one, gave us a beating, and sent us off to our room. Paul also said, quote, The abuse came on gradually. It was a strange situation to go from Nazareth House to sitting on a couch in a house with parents who didn't talk to us. I remember in Crosby, Bob turned around and said he didn't want to go back with our parents. That was in mine and Kevin's mind, but Bob was the only one who said it. So it sounds like he was a little bit more outspoken than the other ones. Could have been. With his IQ, he was probably more articulate with his thoughts and feelings as well. Mm -hmm. The physical abuse was mostly at the hands of their father, but their mother was far from innocent. About the abuse, Paul said, quote, It was just the old fella who hit us with his fists, belt, and sometimes a stick. But our ma instigated half of it. If we went to the shops instead of coming straight home, she would bring it to dad's attention and he would beat us. I think they were equally to blame. In my eyes, a mother is supposed to protect her children. And they are. They are. Not sell them up to be beaten. Right. To tattle on them when Mm -hmm. you know that that is what's going to happen, that they're going to get a vicious beating. Yeah. But back in those days, it was considered like the father's responsibility to discipline. It was. I read that there was a six-month span when Robert was locked alone inside his bedroom. What? For six months? For six months. His dirtbag father would come into the room multiple times a day just to viciously beat Robert. These beatings were his only contact with another person during the six months and would basically be his first time in solitary confinement. Regarding this ordeal, Robert later said, quote, All I remember of my childhood is the beatings. Once I was locked in a room for six months and my father only opened the door to come in to beat me four or six times a day. He used to hit me with sticks or rods, and once he bust a twenty-two air rifle over my back. <gasps> and the other kids had corroborated that story that he had busted the whole rifle Wow! over top of Robert. But for six months, his mom didn't even come in to see him. The siblings weren't allowed to come and see him. He just had to sit in this room for six whole months and just wait for the multiple beatings. And wait for the door to creak open. Yeah. When he was going to be beat again. Right? That is crazy. Yeah. And who knows day, night, like when these beatings occurred. Well, I was thinking, where the heck does his dad work that he can be home four to six times a day? Oh, you absolutely could make that work. 
I read different accounts of what his father actually did, so I didn't put it in. But you can get a beating or two in in the morning. A couple after dinner and then a couple before bed. And that's, yeah, yeah you can get true. your four to six in for sure. Mm-hmm. If he was a laborer and was able to come home for lunch. And yeah, that's yeah, true. Who knows? And then heaven help him on the weekends. One year after his parents retrieved him from the orphanage, Robert was removed from their home by social services and sent to live in foster care. Just him. Just him. Yeah, apparently Robert was the only one to be taken from the home. And this made me question if he maybe really was targeted more than the others. That's unusual. Yeah. Or maybe word had gotten out that he was kept locked in a room for six months and maybe that's why he got taken away. But you think that if these parents are a danger to one child, they would be a danger to all 12. Right. You would think so. But this would have been early 60s by now, right? That this is happening and not the resources that we have today. No, and it was definitely a common mentality that he didn't interfere in other people's business. Right. Yeah. And if someone just reported that Robert was locked in the room, then it was just Robert that got taken out. Hmm. And I'm just speculating. I don't know if it was because of that, but it does make me think that maybe he was targeted more. Yeah. If he was the only one to be taken away. Right. Robert later reported that he was raped as a child and that the abuse he endured left deep psychological scars. Who was he raped by? I'm not sure if he was raped while at his parents' house or in foster care. I saw differing reports. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. In the late 60s, Robert, now a teenager, was going from foster home to foster home, and he had had enough. At 16, he ran away from foster care to try to make it on his own. And sadly, he really was all alone. I read that Robert's parents told his siblings that he was dead, so they wouldn't even have been trying to look for him at that time. What? Mm-hmm. His brother Paul later explained that he thought Robert was dead for about five years. He said, quote, On a rare visit to my parents' house, my old fella told me he had a letter saying Bob was dead. That must have been the time of his first killing. So when he went into foster care, his parents told his siblings that that's when he died? Paul figures it was around the time that Robert commits his first murder that his dad is now saying to the kids, your brother's dead. Okay. They think he's died. They're not looking for him. And was the dad maybe doing that to be like, oh, he's just dead to us because he's done this thing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All high and mighty dad. My son killed somebody. Well, he's dead. He's not part of our family anymore. You need to take a look in the mirror, dad. Yeah. (laughs) After running away, Robert turned to sex work in London as a way to support himself. This line of work soon led him into a pretty serious drug addiction. Oh, I would think so. Was he homosexual? Not that I read. Okay. But it was mostly male clients that he had. Mm -hmm. I think it was just a way for him to support himself. And that was a quick way for him to make some money. And it was just a downward spiral. Yeah, I could see how that would happen. Yeah. And I had read that he was more than likely raped by some of these clients as well. Mm. Which we learned people get raped a lot in sex work. Yep. Unfortunately. Robert was known as a rent boy, which is a specific type of male sex worker. The term originated in Great Britain, Ireland, and New Zealand. A rent boy usually refers to a young man who works the streets and has sex with men for lower rates. A rent boy would service more of the working class clients. The men who serviced middle or upper class clients were referred to as escorts. Mm -hmm. And the older male sex workers were referred to as hustlers. More recently, the term rent boy is used to describe a higher-end male sex worker who provides a rougher fantasy to his clients. And that completes today's lesson on male sex workers in Great Britain. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was interesting because he's referred to as a rent boy. I'm like, well, what's a rent boy? So that was a little rabbit hole I went down learning about all the different male sex workers in Britain at that time. That was a deep dig that you went down. Yeah. 
Between the childhood abuse, a growing addiction, and sex work, Robert reportedly had attempted suicide on more than one occasion and was forced to seek psychiatric help. It sounded like he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals at this time. That's so sad Mm -hmm. from such a bright little boy that had a good future ahead of him. Yeah, a whole future of promise. Mm -hmm. Robert would later claim that he heard voices telling him to kill his parents. He said, quote, if I had killed my parents in 1970, none of these people would have died. And we're going to come back to that. The first person who died at the hands of Robert Maudsley was a 30-year-old man named John Farrell in 1974. Robert was only 21 years old and still working as a rent boy. John was one of his Johns. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> it's like, he's one of his clients, isn't he? He is. I read in one account that John may have been one of his regular clients or even possibly serving as Robert's sugar daddy at the time. Oh. It seems plausible to me that they were more than acquainted because of what John decided to do while with Robert. The thing that would ultimately cost him his life. What did he do with him? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) On March 14th, 1974, Robert was with John at John's flat in Wood Green, London to provide his services. John decided he wanted to show Robert some pictures he had taken. The pictures were of John sexually abusing various children. Oh, Mm -hmm. dirtbag. Yeah, big dirtbag. I assume that John showed Robert these revolting photographs in hopes that Robert would be into it. But to say that his plan backfired is an understatement with grave consequences. Well, as somebody that had been raped as a young child, I'm sure he didn't look on it the same way John did. No. And was probably shocked to all of a sudden see these photos and see real children being abused at the hands of this monster. So like you said, being a victim of child abuse himself, Robert snapped and he garroted John Farrell to death. And in case anyone doesn't know, garroted basically means strangulation, but usually with an iron collar, a wire, or a cord. Once John was dead, Robert went and turned himself into the police. He told them he needed psychiatric help. It was later decided that Robert had entered a state of presumed psychosis during the murder. Okay. Yeah, so he just went and turned himself in right after. Which seems believable. It does. It would have been a huge trigger for him. Yep. And then he turned himself in. Yeah, because he's not Mm. planning to be a murderer. No. I feel like, especially starting out, not a bad guy. Mm. He just garroted this man to death. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit dirtbag-ish. Right. But I believe that there probably was presumed psychosis during the murder, right? That he just snapped and it overtook him. And then he did the right thing by turning himself in. Mm -hmm. Not that we're making excuses for Robert, but we're just trying to understand what's happening here. Robert gains multiple nicknames as a murderer. I've actually not seen a murderer get so many different nicknames. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, and we'll discuss each of them as they come along. But his first one comes from this murder. He was given the nickname Blue because when the police found John's body, his face had turned blue from the strangulation. Makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Robert was found unfit to stand trial and was instead sent to Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane. He was sentenced to life in Broadmoor with the recommendation that he never be released. Hmm. That seems harsh or maybe more harsh than what we've just seen in previous Canadian cases. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they weren't messing around with Robert at no. all. Well, and given what he goes on to do later, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I don't know. I'm going to wait for my opinions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to taint anyone else's opinion while we're going through it. So Broadmoor Hospital famously houses some of England's most violent and dangerous criminals. And since we've already had one mini lesson about rent boys today, I thought we'd have another little one, but this time about Broadmoor. It's the oldest high security psychiatric hospital in England. 
It was built in Crowthorne, Berkshire, England in 1863. And I apologize if I get any names wrong. (laughs) It was originally named Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. It opened with 284 beds, but caters to around 240 and was first built on 53 acres or 21 hectares. So it's a big hospital. It is. It definitely looks like a prison, but it is in fact a hospital. The first patient was a female admitted May 27, 1863 for infanticide, which is killing a baby. But later analysis showed that she was likely just suffering from congenital syphilis, an infectious disease acquired by the fetus before birth. Oh, isn't that sad? That's awful. (laughs) Yeah, she was the very first patient admitted there. And so then mom had syphilis too. And probably went crazy later on because that's what syphilis does (laughs) to your brain. Could have. But it's just so sad that this baby died and they just went right for, oh, she murdered the baby. Yeah. Male patients arrived February 27th, 1864. There were four male blocks and one female block, but an additional male block was built in 1902. It is now all male, I believe, partly due to numerous allegations of sexual abuse targeted largely towards female patients. But a female charge nurse was also suspended in 2010 for sexual activity with a patient. I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that one. Oh, definitely different. Yeah. Definitely different. Yeah. The other was sexual abuse. The other was this charge nurse having activity. Both would be frowned upon. Oh, absolutely. One more than the other, but yes. In 1952, a child murderer escaped, causing the hospital to implement extensive alarm systems, eventually using alarms based on Second World War air raid sirens. Oh. They don't do that anymore, but they did. There were also protocols and alarm systems to alert the neighboring schools if a patient escaped. Because the patients consisted of Britain's most dangerous criminals, any escapee can pose a great risk to the nearby communities. Yeah, it makes sense that they'd need a pretty secure alarm system. Right? I thought, oh, that would be maybe a little unnerving to live right next to Broadmoor Hospital. Well, hopefully nobody did live right next to them. They had a lot of land. They did have a lot of land. Yeah. But they did have neighboring communities. Yeah. Right? They're not on an island. It's not Alcatraz. <laughs> Which is super cool, by the way. I went to Alcatraz. And so I was picturing as I'm talking about some of these places, more of like an Alcatraz vibe. Mm. If you have the chance to ever do that tour, do it. That was a fun one. It was, yeah. And do it with the audio. You can do it with an audio tour. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's just like a headset tour. Many attacks have been aimed towards staff by patients. And so their security measures have increased over time as technology improves. Broadmoor uses psychiatric medication, psychotherapy, and occupational therapy to treat many severe mental illnesses and personality disorders. Some of the more famous patients have been Peter Sutcliffe, or the Yorkshire Ripper, Ian Ball, the man who tried to kidnap Princess Anne, Ronnie Cray, Charles Bronson, David Copeland, who's the London Nail Bomber, and Daniel Gonzalez, nicknamed Freddy Krueger Killer, who ended up killing himself inside the hospital. For time, that's all I'll say about Broadmoor for now, but I am sure there is a certain vibe when you walk through its doors. And if you're interested, there have been many documentaries made about this facility. I could go on and on, but I won't. It sounds like an interesting place. (laughs) It is. At first, Robert stayed out of trouble while at Broadmoor, but in 1977, just three years after being sent there, that would change. Robert and another patient named David Cheeseman decided to serve justice in the best way they knew how. They locked themselves in the cell with a third patient, David Francis, on February 26, 1977, by barricading the door. David was 26 and had been sent to Broadmoor after being convicted as a child molester, Mm. which is clearly a trigger for Robert. Yep. 
Somehow, and I don't know how this happened, but somehow Robert and David Cheeseman were able to keep David Francis locked in the cell with them for nine hours. That actually isn't surprising. Nine hours? No. That it was surprising to me. Oh. That nine hours gave them plenty of time to inflict the most horrific torture on this child molester. Will you think about how long it takes them to like actually enter a cell and yeah, I don't know. Like how do you enter yeah. a cell that they barricaded themselves in? For sure. Right. And I don't know how long they were even in there before someone even noticed. even noticed. Yeah. That's like the bus. They yeah. had to wait for so long before they the did. guy actually gave yeah. up. And so maybe they had to just wait it out. That's true. Because it would have been too dangerous to enter for other people. Right. Mind you, I still think on the bus they should have tear gassed him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't agree with that one at all. But yeah. I'm but just no, trying, I see what you're saying. I'm trying to understand why they would leave him in there nine hours. Yeah. And allow this to happen to another individual. Right. And because they didn't kill him right away either, which is different than the bus. They were torturing him for a great amount Oof. of that time. But then he's a child molester. Maybe one of the guards was like, yeah, he deserves it. Yeah. Who knows? I'm we don't know what happened there. I and turn my back on that one. Right? Or were they so short staffed and they were not being watched yeah, maybe. all the time? I don't know. But this is a hospital for the most dangerous criminals. They'd be watched. Right. It was during shift change. Maybe. <laughs> nine for nine hour hours? Shift <laughs> well, I know that they had found out before nine hours, but I don't know how long mm. they were in there alone before anyone had found out. And maybe they had made a really good barricade. <laughs> <laughs> Robert had filed down a spoon to use as a weapon. They garroted David Francis and then held his body up for the guards to see through the spy hatch in the door. So this was all premeditated if he made his weapon. Oh, yeah. Beforehand. This was. It this. wasn't like they just told him about it and then they dragged him off into a room. Right. Yeah. No, this one was definitely premeditated. They picked him out. They worked together. They mm. wanted to kill him and they wanted to torture him first. One of the guards made the comment that when they finally broke through the barricade, they found David Francis with his head quote, cracked open like a boiled egg, likely from having his head smashed against the wall. Mm. David also had a spoon rammed into his head. This earned Robert another nickname, which is spoons. I read that the spoon was inserted into the brain through the victim's ear. When people saw and heard about the spoon sticking out of David's head, the rumors of cannibalism started to fly. The media reported that Robert had eaten parts of his victim's brain and the public ate it up. No pun intended. <laughs> this news earned him the names Brain Eater and Hannibal the Cannibal. Wow. But he never did, right? No, he didn't. Yeah. But people did believe this rumor for decades. However, it is actually false. And autopsy reports were able to confirm that parts of the brain were not missing. Mm. So he is not a cannibal. But if you look up Robert Maudsley. There are reports that he is. Almost all of them is like Hannibal the Cannibal. And he's not. Oh. That is false. So if you see that, it's not true. It was because he had a spoon sticking out of his head, right? So they were just like, oh, yeah, he must have eaten his brain. <laughs> no, he just only had spoons to make into a dagger, basically. And so had they purposely chosen this guy because they knew he was a child molester? Yes. What's said in group therapy doesn't stay in group therapy. <laughs> Not at Broadmoor. No. No. And this is where like people have a hard time feeling sorry for the victims. Yeah. But then that goes back to some of our cases where, you know, all victims matter, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't get to choose which victims are important and which ones aren't. Yeah. Murder is murder. After this murder, Robert was all of a sudden deemed fit to stand trial and was ultimately convicted of manslaughter. What? Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in the famous Wakefield prison, again under the recommendation that he never be released. Robert did not like this transfer and made it known that he wanted to go back to Broadmoor, but going back would not be in his fate. 
And so I thought now might be a good time for our third and final mini lesson, this time about Wakefield Prison. I'm still trying to figure out why they wouldn't find him insane the second time around. Maybe because it was premeditated. Because the other one was like psychosis, they mm-hmm. were saying, right? Which I believe it was that he just snapped yeah. when he saw those photos. But he and did this plan one. this one. Yeah, he did. Yeah. But he was insane enough to stay in the mental asylum for For the rest life. of his life. Yeah. So wouldn't that already indicate that he was not of the same mind? No, I had the same thoughts and feelings hmm. about that for sure. Obviously, though, he needs a place with a little bit more security. Yeah, that could be too. And maybe they were just kind of like, oh my gosh, we can't handle this guy. Like we need Mm -hmm. to get him out of here. Yeah. But I don't know that sending him to Wakefield was the solution either. And I was actually surprised that he got manslaughter. Like why was that not first degree murder? Yeah, because it was premeditated. There's witnesses, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's no he said, she said in this account. No. All right. Now on to Wakefield. Wakefield Prison is widely known as Monster Mansion due to the large number of high-profile and high-risk sex offenders and murderers who are held there. Wakefield is a Category A maximum security prison for men in West Yorkshire, England. It opened in 1594 and holds around 600 prisoners. The exercise yard had a mulberry tree in it that inmates would exercise around, and it is said that the song Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush was linked to this tree. The tree was removed in 2019 after it had died, and there is no real evidence that the song is actually linked to this tree, despite it being on the prison's website at one time. The lyrics to the song. Hmm. What are the lyrics to that song? Because it's like, this is the way we wash our clothes. This is the way, you know, so it could definitely have been about prison life. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think it is linked, <laughs> but who knows? But a lot of children's nursery rhymes and songs yeah. come from dark places like this. Absolutely. Like yeah. Ring Around the Rosie. Right. Disturbing. Mm-hmm. So a little history lesson in our episode today. <laughs> Very interesting. In 2001, Wakefield announced the building of a new supermax security unit to house the most dangerous criminals in the British prison system. And it was the first of its kind to be built in the UK. In 2004, Wakefield was criticized for being over-controlling and disrespectful to inmates. And one-third of prisoners reported that they had been victimized while incarcerated there. But again, you've got that population that not a lot of people care if they're victimized. And you would have to rule with an iron fist there. If you have the worst of the worst, the most notorious, the scariest individuals in Britain being placed in this building together. Yeah, it's not a place that you can let get out of hand even a little bit. No. And you can't show weakness at all. If you're a guard that showed weakness, heaven help you. Mm-hmm. It has been noted that those with psychiatric illnesses may only get worse inside the prison. Peter Clark is quoted saying, quote, Many prisoners across the prison estate are held in conditions that are not in any way therapeutic and indeed, in many cases, clearly exasperate their condition. I could see that. Mm-hmm. We covered a case about another inmate of Wakefield Prison, Colin Ireland, who had made a New Year's resolution to become a serial killer and targeted gay men as his victims. But the list of notorious killers who have been housed at Wakefield is staggering. Again, you can find many documentaries about Wakefield. And I just find both of these buildings fascinating. But again, for time, that's all I'll say about Wakefield. (laughs) You'll have to visit there one day. Oh my gosh. Both of those places, Broadmoor and Wakefield, I would love to go see. I'd be like scared, but I would love to go see it. not the insides of them. (laughs) No. And that's where I say like there must be a vibe when you walk in those doors because even in Alcatraz, after it's all shut down and no prisoners are there, as soon as you get there, there's this eerie vibe. You feel it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I did anyways. But maybe I'm just crazy. <laughs> You're a little bit sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be walking through. Are you kidding? You're the biggest scaredy cat. 
It's true. It's just eerie to see. Like at Alcatraz, they showed us a cell where a man had pulled in a guard and murdered him. Or, you know, just even being in like their exercise yard or where they ate and those different things, right? Mm. It has a feeling for sure. Surprisingly, Robert was allowed to live in Gen Pop at Wakefield, which is general population. This would turn out to be a big mistake. After murdering another prisoner, they're going to put him back in Gen Pop? Yep. That's an interesting decision. It is. I kind of laughed at that too. And in hindsight, they were probably like, oh man, we shouldn't have done that. But he's coming from a hospital and now he's going into the high maximum security prison and they're probably thinking, oh no, he'll be fine. But he's not fine. they underestimated him. They did. Because on July 29th, 1978, Robert would brutally murder two of his fellow inmates in the same day, earning him serial killer status. Wow. 46-year-old Salney Darwood would be victim number one of the day. Salney was serving a life sentence for the manslaughter and severe domestic violence of his wife, Blanche. He was not officially convicted of any type of child abuse. However, many speculate that since he was such an abuser to his wife, that the domestic violence could have spilled over to his children if he had any, and this would have sealed his fate with Robert. Mm -hmm. Acting alone this time, Robert invited Salney into his cell. Robert stabbed and garroted Salney, killing him. He stabbed him with a dagger that he had made. Out of a spoon? I'm not sure if this one was a spoon. (laughs) Could have been. Or his toothbrush. Yeah, I was just going to say maybe a toothbrush. (laughs) Wanting to rid the earth of more dirtbags, Robert wasn't finished with only one murder. Other inmates commented that Robert had set out to kill seven prisoners that day. I wonder how he made his list. Probably just talking. He's in Gen Pop finding out who are these child abusers. Robert shoved Salney's corpse under his bed and tried to lure other prisoners into his cell, but all refused. How closely were they being kept an eye on if this prisoner goes missing for how long before a guard recognizes he's gone? I know. I know. So he kills him and shoves him under his bed and (laughs) hides him there. I did read that he had cleaned up himself along with his cell first, but still he couldn't talk anyone else to go into a cell with him. Well, it's not like there's a bed skirt underneath the bed to hide it. No, it sounds like he was hidden. Oh. Like he had him shoved in there. I think the beds are pretty low to the ground too. When you're walking towards something, if it's a distance off, you can easily see under beds or under couches. That's true. But they're not looking. Yeah. I'm not sure. It sounds like he was hidden. One of the prisoners said that he didn't go with Robert because of the madness that they could see in his eyes. Ooh. So there you go back into the insane call. Right. And we've talked about how like your countenance can change too, right? Mm -hmm. Robert had to resort to searching the wing for his next victim. He found a man who would be a perfect victim number two for the day. A 56-year-old man named William Roberts, who was currently serving time for the sexual assault of a seven-year-old little girl. Mm. So many dirtbags in this case. Robert managed to corner William in his own cell and proceeded to stab and bash him to death. He used his makeshift dagger to stab William in the head multiple times and then flung his body around, smashing his head repeatedly into the wall. Okay, this has got to get somebody's attention. You would think, but it doesn't. It doesn't? Nope. What? (laughs) This is supposed to be maximum security. I know. I know. And he's just just like like whipping this guy around like a rag doll, smashing his head into the wall. For some reason, though, after killing William, Robert was satisfied with his work and walked straight to the wing office, set his bloody dagger on the table, and told the officer that they were going to be too short for roll call. Oh. And 
I was like, come on. As horrible as that is, is that not the best one-liner for a serial killer ever? Walks in, puts the bloody dagger down. Well, we're going to be too short when you do roll call. That's crazy. Yeah. This entire case feels more like a Hollywood movie glorifying a vigilante who is ridding the world of the worst of the worst. But you can also see why Robert is given the title of Britain's most dangerous prisoner. Mm-hmm. And again, he's just turning himself in. He was done. So I don't know if this is some type of psychosis break. And then when it's over, he's like, okay, I'm done. It's just so bizarre. It is. How is he not insane? I know. I guess it's not like he could get away. Like, it's not like he's going to escape prison to hide his crimes. They're in his cell. That's true. And other inmates had to have seen what was happening. Yeah. And nobody raised the flag. No. Robert had yet another murder trial in 1979. It was during this trial that Robert admitted that he had pent up aggression due to his childhood. He said, quote, when I kill, I think I have my parents in mind. If I had killed them, then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world. Wow. So just so much rage. So much rage pent up from his childhood. And we do see this in other cases where a person will hunt a certain type of victim that reminds them of someone else and will continue to kill this type of victim as a proxy for the person they would really like to kill. Right. So does that not make you believe then that his dad was the one that sexually molested him? That's actually literally what I have next in my notes, that this also sways me more towards the fact that Robert was likely sexually abused by his father as a child. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because it has to do more with the sexual abuse of these children. Robert Maudsley was convicted of double murder and was sent back to Wakefield Prison to live out four life sentences. Robert's brother Paul remembers reading about the double murder in Wakefield Prison and had to write to the prison to confirm that it was indeed his brother. Because remember, he thought he was dead. Can you even imagine thinking your little brother is dead and then reading about him in the news years later as a serial killer? Why didn't he hear about it with the first murder? But maybe it wasn't publicized or maybe he just didn't see the paper then. Yeah. And this was a big double murder at Mm -hmm. a maximum security prison. This would have been a big deal, right? I'm not sure the exact dates, but from what I could gather, Robert spent some time in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight to see a psychologist. So I'm not sure if they had him staying there or if he just went to see the psychologist there. While there, he met with psychologist Dr. Bob Johnson, who later said he believed that he was making progress with Robert and that he was three quarters of the way through resolving the aggression and violence that made Robert dangerous. Regardless of this assessment, after three years, the treatments abruptly stopped, and Robert was sent back to finish out his sentence at the notorious Wakefield Prison. This time, he wouldn't be permitted to associate with other prisoners. That's not a big surprise. No. Dr. Johnson allegedly tried to contact Robert several times, but his letters went unanswered until he received a three-word message that stated, quote, all alone now. Dr. Johnson says, quote, I never condone what violent prisoners have done. You condemn the act, but you don't condemn the person. You try to rescue the person. By dealing with the causes, you can stop the crime. Remember how I mentioned that many believe his prison treatment is inhumane? Mm-hmm. Well, now is the time to find out why and see if you agree. Once back at Wakefield, Robert was sent to solitary confinement and remains there to this day, but not even in the way that you think. Because prison officials deemed Robert as too dangerous for a normal cell, they decided to build him one in the bowels of the prison. Mm -hmm. In 1983, they built a five and a half by four and a half meter or 18 by 15 foot cell out of bulletproof glass inside the Wakefield prison basement to house Robert. 
And does this not totally give you Hannibal Lecter vibes? Yes. He's totally in a glass cage. <laughs> I was thinking Magneto. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's in a couple of movies too where they have them all in yeah. these like glass things. They keep him in this glass box so he can be observed at all times. He has a table and a chair made from compressed cardboard. The sink and toilet are bolted to the floor and his bed is just a concrete slab. He was making knives out of everything else. For sure. And they want to make sure he's not going to kill himself or harm anyone else, right? He doesn't even get blankets. (laughs) I don't know. It just said his bed was just a concrete slab. I could see it not. The door to his cell is solid steel and opens into a cage that is within the cell. The small cage is made of thick, transparent acrylic panels. One of these panels has a small slot at the bottom where officers slide his food and other items through. So within this glass cell is a separate little box. Yeah, like an anteroom. Yeah, where they can come in and that's where they slide the stuff. The stuff. The stuff. (laughs) Food and maybe toilet paper, that kind of stuff, right? Robert must stay in his glass box for 23 hours out of every day. He is allowed to exercise for one hour a day and is escorted by six officers and is not permitted any contact with other inmates. This is the highest level of isolation that a prisoner has ever been subjected to at Wakefield. Robert has been in his box for over 40 years. Wow. So does he write letters and read? And He does write some letters. Because... And that's where we get some of these quotes. Okay. As human beings, we are social creatures. We to are. isolate somebody like that is... I think for a great amount of that 40 years, he does have nothing in that box. Wow. And I think 40 years is excessive. That's a long time to be put into solitary confinement. And he's in the basement. There's not even windows. There's nothing. In March of 2000, Robert pleaded for his terms of solitary confinement to be relaxed. This plea was denied. He asked for a pet budgie. The plea was denied. He then asked for a cyanide pill so that he could take his own life. And that plea was also denied. About his request for a budgie, Robert wrote to the Times, quote, Why can't I have a budgie instead of the flies and cockroaches and spiders I currently have? I promise to love it and not eat it. Robert's brother Paul said, quote, As far as I can tell, the prison authorities are trying to break him. His trouble started because he got locked up as a kid. All they do when they put him back there is bring all that trauma back to him. Yeah, that's so true. Right? It's so sad. Robert says, quote, all I have to look forward to is further mental breakdown and possible suicide. In many ways, I think this is what the authorities hope for. That way, the problem of Robert John Maudsley can be easily and swiftly resolved. Robert is one of the few offenders in Britain who have been told they will never be released. Officials are deeming him untreatable. But there was that other psychologist that said he was three quarters of the way treated already. Yeah. And untreatable for 40 years. Well, I don't know. I do think that some people are untreatable. Yeah, maybe. But not necessarily solitary confinement untreatable. Right. And he actually holds the record for being held in solitary confinement for the longest amount of time. Since being in solitary confinement, very few pictures have been taken of Robert. No media outlet has been inside the prison to photograph him in decades. Unsurprisingly, being held in a glass box has taken its toll on Robert. He reportedly looks much older than he is. He is described as having gray hair and a long gray beard. I read that he went 12 years without a haircut, earning him the nickname Wolfie. Wow. I did read that barbers were too scared of him, that they wouldn't go in to cut his hair. Well, and how do you cut somebody's hair with cardboard scissors? Well, right, because then you're standing right behind him with yeah. yeah shears or something. 
His skin is reportedly extremely pale from lack of sunlight, and his face looks sunken. A saving grace for Robert has been being allowed to write letters back and forth with his nephew Gavin. They have never met, but share a great bond. A great bond with a serial killer? Yeah, who's his uncle? Yeah. I think his family view it differently. They, that like he was we, created? Yeah, like we said at the beginning, Robert would have lived a much different life had he been left in the orphanage. Yeah. Even if he had never been adopted out, just living there was a good environment for him. Mm-hmm. According to an interview that Gavin gave about his uncle, it sounds like Robert is now able to watch TV. Gavin said, quote, he likes to write us letters and tell me what he's been watching on TV. He really loves the wildlife programs. Robert signs his letters to his nephew as his latest nickname, Wolfie. Robert's brother Paul was quoted saying, quote, I've always thought, there but for the grace of God I go, I could easily have turned out like Bob, but I was lucky. I ended up with someone who loved me and showed me affection. Kevin, who now lives in Bradford, was the same. We're both married with four kids. But for Bob, the chain of abuse was never broken. He's been abused all of his life. And remember that Robert was the only one placed in foster care out of his siblings, and he had to fend for himself in the world of addiction, abuse, and sex work. It made me question, did he have any type of loving relationship since his time at the orphanage? It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't sound like it. After his trial, one of the nuns from Nazareth House said about Robert, quote, I never thought of him as awkward or troublesome. I certainly do not remember him as being insane. If anything, he was one of the better behaved boys. With some of the boys, you would think he's going to be a right so-and-so, but not him. I had no idea of the trouble the family had at home. I am sad to hear what has become of him. Yeah, it would be so sad to know him as a little boy and then to see what the heck become of him. Right. Because he was smart and he was kind and caring and he was a good kid. Mm-hmm. Like she said, one of the more well-behaved ones. And they had them there for nine years. They raised him from a baby. They would have grown to love Robert and his siblings. Mm-hmm. Robert does have supporters who feel like he's the victim of an uncaring and unsympathetic prison system that virtually denies him treatment and does nothing to assist in his rehabilitation. Is the chance at rehabilitation too much to ask of a prison system that is housing the worst of Britain's worst? Especially when he was making progress with Dr. Johnson. Not that I'm condoning what they're doing to him now, because I think solitary confinement for that long is not good for anybody. But he had the chance at rehabilitation twice. And I mean, I do feel like he should be incarcerated. Absolutely. But solitary confinement for over 40 years, I think that's extensive. It is harsh. It is really harsh. But is that going along with like he's mentally insane and unpredictable? And so how do you actually keep that person safe or other people safe even in general population? Right. If the only doctor to treat him is saying that he can be rehabilitated, why not at least explore that? And you had 40 years and he's still alive sitting in that glass box now in the basement of Wakefield. There's lots of psychiatrists, though, that overstate what they could do. That's true. He could be tooting his own horn like, oh, I could have saved Robert. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to say. But listeners, let us know what you think, because I am curious people's thoughts on this one. Has his punishment been cruel? Does it breach his human rights? Or is he getting what he deserves for brutally killing four men? It is such an interesting case that you've done for us today. And I thought I would finish with another quote from Robert himself. He wrote, quote, the prison authorities see me as a problem and their solution has been to put me in solitary confinement and throw away the key to bury me alive in a concrete coffin. It does not matter to them whether I am mad or bad. They do not know the answer and they do not care just so long as I am kept out of sight and out of mind. 
I am left to stagnate, vegetate, and to regress. Left to confront my solitary head-on with people who have eyes but don't see, and who have ears but don't hear, and who have mouths but don't speak. My life in solitary is one long period of unbroken depression. Hmm. And that is the twisted story of a man who became a serial killer after becoming incarcerated, who some people view as a vigilante and is forced to live the rest of his days in a glass box. Britain's most dangerous prisoner, Robert Maudsley. That is a wild case. So thanks again, Lyndon, for the suggestion. Good job, Lyndon. Yeah. Good suggestion. (laughs) But keep those suggestions coming in. We'd like to hear what you want to hear about. Absolutely. We hope you'll join us next week. When Melissa has another riveting case. But until then, have a great week. See ya. Bye. I could look it up. Would you like me to look it no, up? No, that's okay. <laughs> Got this name already. Robert. Robert. Maudsley. No hot sauce was used in the making of this case. <laughs> and I can't use that word on our podcast. No. <laughs> this is an all-male prison after all. Mm-hmm. Robert wanted to... T- Robert wanted to... T- it's too many T's. I'm confused. You set me up. I'm trying. You're not biting, though. And another patient named David Cheeseman decided to serve justice. Cheese. I knew you were going to laugh. <laughs> I'm too. <laughs> it's a cheesy name. Is that what it you're going to say? It's a cheesy name. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if he was lactose intolerant? <laughs> you want cheese with that? No, thank you. <laughs> All right. We're back to our regularly programmed, <laughs> scheduled program or whatever. Back to our, regu- our, what regularly, back to our, our regularly scheduled program. Yes. <laughs> I'm in the basement with no window to the outside. She saves the tree. Press the buttons. (laughs) Just press the buttons. Cheeky little monkey. (laughs) Sassin me. (laughs) I knew you were going to say bizarre. (laughs) It's like she's going to say it's bizarre. Good enough. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.